Welcome to Sightseeing Japan, the podcast where we explore the land of ancient mountain villages. I'm Paul Bresson. And I'm Jason Neeling. And today we're talking about a little place called Shirakawago. It is a beautiful little village nestled in a valley in the Japanese Alps in Gifu Prefecture in central Honshu. And it's probably my favorite place in the world that I've been to. It's just super, super pretty. Like You, you got to Google it. If you go on Google, look up Shirakawago, look at the pictures, you'll see what I mean. It's like you got this little village made up of around 100 little historic wooden farmhouses, some of which are over 250 years old. And then this whole village is surrounded by mountains and forest. It just looks like something out of a fairy tale. Yeah, there's these thin little valley nestled right next to the river where it's like flat enough to build anything or grow anything. And the, everything else is just wilderness. Like I saw that like the area around it is like 96% wilderness. Mm-hmm. So it's like these little villages and they're just surrounded by mountain forest and nature. Yeah. I mean, you can get to them now, like there are buses that go there and stuff, but it used to be super remote, you know? I mean, it still sort of is in a way. Yeah, I heard they developed some of their own customs and culture because they were isolated geographically from their neighbors. Mm -hmm. So these farmhouses that make up the village are kind of the main attraction. And we'll go into detail later about what makes them so cool. They are super cool. But this village looks just idyllic. Beautiful in all seasons, too. In the spring, you got the cherry blossoms all over the place. In summer, it's just lush and green everywhere. In the fall, which is when I went, you know, you got these amazing fall colors just rolling over the mountains and stuff. It's just covered in trees. It's amazing. And then in winter, those farmhouses look so cozy. Like those are some of my favorite pictures. It, It reminds me of Switzerland or something, you know? Right. The style of these houses is not something you would expect to see in Japan if you've never heard of them. Yeah, it's pretty unique to this region Mm -hmm. specifically. Yeah. I was going to make the point about the seasons too, because so much of Japanese culture like emphasizes the seasons and the changing. And I feel like maybe nowhere in Japan, maybe nowhere in the world plays the seasons quite as well as Shirakawa Go. Yeah, there's a very stark contrast between those in Shirakawago for sure. So you might hear the name Ogimachi Village too, which is pretty synonymous with Shirakawago. Yeah, yeah. Both of those names usually used to describe this this little tiny village with all these houses where people are living. There's a wider area that's referred to as Shirakawa or Shirakawa Mura which means Shirakawa Village or something like that. It's hard to kind of translate these names into English because Japanese has certain suffixes that refer to different types of political divisions, that kind of thing. But yeah, when we're talking about this actual village, usually called either Shirakawago or you might see Ogimachi. Yeah. So this village was declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1995. And I know in past episodes, we've mentioned several other World Heritage Sites, and Japan has a bunch of them all over the country, but did we ever really explain what exactly that means? I think one time you did, but not every time. It may be a refresher for us. Okay. Yeah, I got some details here. So UNESCO 
stands for the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, and they define a World Heritage Site as an irreplaceable treasure, either produced naturally by the Earth or through the history of mankind. A common heritage of humanity that people currently living around the world inherited from the past and must now convey into the future. Sounds impressive. Yeah. So these are, you know, places worth preserving, places that have a lot of history. I actually have a quote from UNESCO about why Shirakawago, specifically, and other nearby historical villages are so notable. Oh, really? Yeah. Quote, Located in a mountainous region that was cut off from the rest of the world for a long period of time, these villages with their gasho-style houses subsisted on the cultivation of mulberry trees and the rearing of silkworms. The large houses with their steeply pitched thatched roofs are the only examples of their kind in Japan. Despite economic upheavals, the villages are outstanding examples of a traditional way of life perfectly adapted to the environment and people's social and economic circumstances. Well, that's pretty well said. And I think it leads into uh, a history section. Sure. Let's talk some history. So the oldest traces of human life in this area are artifacts from somewhere between 7,000 B.C. and 2300 B.C. They found multiple pieces of pottery there. They've also excavated a mirror from 600 C.E. and documents from 700 C.E. that appear to mention Shirakawago, but kind of unclear, I guess. Like they might not have been calling it that. Maybe they weren't totally sure what they were referring to exactly. Yeah, from my research, you got that. A lot of people think the name was around for a long time, but there aren't a lot of concrete examples of it till a little bit later. And then it just becomes really widespread, documented all over the place. Yeah, and I think one of the main reasons that there's not a ton of history about the area is, as we mentioned, it's always been pretty isolated from the rest of the country. It's deep in the mountains, gets a ton of snow, so it was dangerous to try to travel there for a really long time. And it was pretty much just farmers, too. You know, it wasn't near any centers of political power or where there were a lot of upper-class people, so there aren't a ton of records about the area. Yeah, it was not really on the way to anywhere, mm-hmm. or at least not the easiest way to get anywhere. Yeah. So in the 8th century, Shirakawago and the Gokuyama area became the location for aesthetic religious practices and mountain worship centered on Mount Hakusan. So for a long time afterwards, the region was under the control of the Tendai sect of Buddhism. But in the 13th century, the Tendai sect was replaced by the Jodo Shin sect that remains a major religious influence in the area to the present day. Nice. I saw that the name Shirakawago first appeared clearly in around 1176 in the diary of a Kyoto aristocrat. So at least at that point, people knew about it in other parts of Japan. And historically, the economy in the area was mainly supported by agriculture. But since it's hard to cultivate a lot of rice in the mountains, they also planted other grains such as buckwheat and millet. But in the Edo period, around 1700, silk and gunpowder production flourished in Japan. So in Shirakawago, they started farming silkworms and making saltpeter which is an ingredient in gunpowder, 
And this is really when that distinctive style of architecture that we mentioned, for which the village is now known, started to develop. The style reached its final form, which you can see these days if you visit, around 1800. In 1929, the U.S. stock market crashed, of course, famously, which had a major impact on the silk industry. Raw silk had been Japan's biggest export, but after the stock market crashed, there was basically no demand anymore for silk. You know, nobody had the money to buy a bunch of silk. So all of a sudden, young people started moving out of the villages, into the cities to find jobs, and the industry never really recovered in Chiricago, at least not to the extent that it originally was at. Yeah, and today, I don't think you're going to find anyone actually farming silk there, right? Right. But you can find evidence and, uh, you know, artifacts from that time period when they were making silk. Yeah, definitely. Um, So for a while, the only people left were the older generations, and it looked like the community might just fall apart like so many other rural villages in Japan have and are currently. But when the economy boomed after World War II, the village was revived to some extent when modern technology made its way into the village. Several dams were built in the area. But a side effect of that was that around two-thirds of the traditional farmhouses were demolished in favor of more modern buildings. And even with that economic recovery, the population was still dropping. Fortunately, residents of the community came together to protect their shared heritage and way of life. And in 1971, they all agreed on three principles. They all got together and met, and they decided, this is what we're going to do. Do not sell do not rent, and do not destroy these old historic farmhouses. And they set up an association to preserve the remaining buildings. Yeah, they all still meet once a month. Nice. Yeah. So these days, the local economy is mostly supported by tourism, which makes me worry a little bit about how things are going right now. I had that thought too. With the pandemic. And then I thought, you know, it's a really popular place inside of Japan too. So they're probably still getting hopefully a decent number of Japanese tourists. Yeah, hopefully. Uh, They also do still farm there. Probably not enough to survive on that alone, but they do grow stuff. So now I want to talk a little bit about a concept, an ideology that I came across in doing my research for this episode. This concept is called Yui, spelled Y-U-I. So in the most basic sense, Yui is the spirit of community and closeness and supporting one another. And this has been extremely important to the culture of Shirakawago and other mountain villages in Japan. Yeah, the harsh environment, surviving through the really tough winters with heavy snowfall where they're not getting any supplies from anywhere. You need your neighbors. You need each other. Everybody's got to look out for each other. And fighting fires, too. These houses we talk about, we're about to talk about a lot, are very flammable. So they've the whole community's got to be in sync, protecting their homes and their village all the time. Yeah, it's the only way to survive in such a harsh environment. Also, those thatched roofs have to be replaced every 20 to 30 years. And in the past, every time that needed to happen, the whole community would come together to work on one house. It doesn't happen so often anymore, but the point is they had, and in many ways still have, a tight-knit support group 
that personally I think is sorely lacking for most of the modern world. I mean, it reminds me of the American equivalent of like the Amish. Yeah. Like, oh, the fa- this family down the road needs a barn and they all just show up on Saturday and build a barn. Mm-hmm. Like, there you go. Problem solved. Yep. Uh, so I actually have a quote that I found that I thought was interesting. Okay. From Masahito Wada. He's the owner of the Wada House, which is one of the farmhouses which has been converted into a museum. He was talking about when he moved out of the village when he was young to go to university. He said, I was living in an apartment, not knowing the people around me was a very different experience. Having to only worry about yourself was easy, but if something were to happen, where would I be? That weighed on my mind. That kind of living would be unthinkable here. I thought that was interesting, you know, that, I mean, there's a, such a huge contrast between living in a city like Tokyo, where everybody's just packed into these little tiny apartments and stuff, and living in this village where you're just surrounded by wilderness, you know? Yeah. So when you're in Shirakawa Go, did you kind of feel that sense of closeness, the sense of community people had with each other? In a way, I mean... It's also small town life a little bit. Yeah. You know, they all, everybody knows everybody. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a funny feeling. Being there, like you feel like you're in this tiny village, you know, and you can tell that like all the people that live there are, you know, working together and they have this similar way of life. But at the same time, you're kind of surrounded by tourists and, you know, you, you get like this small town feel, but also there are people from all the cities coming to like take a look at everything, you know? Kind of a weird dichotomy there. <laughs> but I actually, we'll get to it. I, I guess this is kind of a spoiler. I was going to save this for later, but I actually stayed in one of these farmhouses overnight. And the last bus taking tourists out of the village leaves at like 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. or something like that. So later in the night, you, you really get much more of that small town feel. And you just walk around and just see like a couple people out walking around, you know, and it just feels really peaceful and isolated, but in a a nice way. (laughs) I don't know. I don't really have a problem with isolation personally. Yeah, I I get it. I saw that recommended in some of the guides I read. Like, you know, if you want the true experience, you know, you got to do the overnight stay. Definitely. Because the town is different after 5 p.m. You know, you're like walking around. Oh, good. All those all those tourists finally got out of here as you're walking around as a tourist. Yeah, but like, yeah. I, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. You ready to talk about what makes Shirakawa go so famous? The Gasho Zukuri farmhouses? Yeah. Cause they are super cool. Like it's just so ingenious the way that they're engineered. And understand why they're so amazing. I think first you really need to think about the climate of the area. You know, we, we mentioned that it's a very harsh climate. Chiricago is located in a mountain valley that gets more snow than almost anywhere else in the country. Yearly average snowfall is over 10 and a half meters. That's so much snow. Yeah, over 34 feet. That's a ridiculous amount of snow. And it forms snow banks well over two meters or six and a half feet high. Winter's bad where we live, but 10 meters, I can't even imagine. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you Googled it and you looked up those pictures, you probably saw like in the winter, the snow is just piled so high on top of those houses and you can't even see the base of the buildings because there's so much snow piled up against them. 
and you just see those little, the warm glow of the lights peeking out the windows. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty cool. It's one of those places where you drive down the road in winter and the snow banks are like well higher than your car. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So these buildings need to be able to withstand lots of snow, heavy wind, and they do withstand it and have for hundreds of years because of this unique style of architecture, the Gasho Zukuri style, which developed over many generations. Like they kept tweaking it and figuring out what worked to protect them from the elements. Yeah, and these houses are large too. Like we say farmhouse, but part of the reason they started building these farmhouses like this was to create the extra room inside to farm silk. So they've got the top story or two would be used, I think, exclusively for silk farming or mm-hmm. and storing the food for the silkworms to eat. Right. And right. then they lived on the main floor. And like a whole family would live there, like generations of a family would live in these farmhouses together. Yeah, like sometimes even three or four generations would live in one building, which could mean as many as 40 people. That's crazy, 40 people living in one house. Yeah, but they're big houses. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, and the spaces are super versatile and efficient. Like you need room for people to sleep. You need a living room for entertaining guests. You need a prayer room for your Buddhist altar. You also need room for all these different industries, not just the silkworms up in the attic, but also the farming. They're making saltpeter. I saw that they made uh, washi paper, Japanese paper there. Uh, That was a significant product, probably due to the abundance of timber in the area. Yeah. So, Paul, did you see what the Gasho Zukri means? Why they call it that? Yeah. It means prayer hands. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's referring to the steep gabled thatched roofs. So when you put your hands together, you know, you're making kind of an A sort of shape. So it's like an A-frame roof. And the sharp angle of that roof lets snow slide off so it's not accumulating all on the top as much. There's one thing that helps with the climate, you know, helps with the snow. The roof itself is something like three feet thick. It is just monstrous. Yeah, they're really thick. To keep all that snow out and to keep heat in in the winter. Mm -hmm. The roofs are really probably my favorite part of the engineering of these houses because the way they're put together is just so amazing. Like many buildings in Japan, they're made without any nails. So that's not too uncommon in Japan. Still impressive though. Yeah. But I think the coolest thing about them is that you know, they needed to build them so that they could withstand strong winds without just being like ripped off the top of the, of the building. So the way they figured out to do that was by making the roof not rigid. So the wooden beams that form the frame of the roof are just tied together. There are no nails. There's nothing holding them solidly so that they're not moving at all. It's all put together with things that can bend and stretch and move. So they would use rope and saplings even, like young trees, to just tie these big wooden beams together so that the roof as a whole is sort of elastic and can actually sway back and forth in the wind. Yep. I imagine that would also help with earthquakes. The building can sway with the wind or the movement of the earth, less likely to crumble to the ground. Absolutely. And the houses are built to face north and south taking in the predominant wind directions in the areas and also 
controlling the amount of sunlight hitting the roof to provide cool summers and warm winters. Yeah, so the valley that this village is situated in is kind of like a wind tunnel. You know, whichever direction the wind is going, it's generally going to follow this same path. So they set up the houses so that the flat side of the roof, the smallest side of the roof, is taking the most force, and the roof is built to sway back and forth in that same direction as the wind. It's pretty amazing. And if you look at those pictures, you can kind of see that the angle at which the houses are built kind of follows this gentle curve through the valley. You can see it with your own eyes. Pretty yeah, awesome. Definitely. So I think you mentioned earlier that the roofs were made out of thatch. Mm-hmm. Basically, big bundles of dried grass just piled on top and tied down. Yeah. And, you know, in my mind, before I'd seen this place, when I thought thatched roof, I'm thinking like, okay, that's a pretty primitive way of building a roof, right? And I had kind of this image in my mind of sort of a messy, I don't know, just a a mass of dried grass or whatever. But it's actually really impressive the way that these roofs are built. And it takes a lot of skill. Like, they're not messy at all. They're really well-built and clean-looking somehow. Yeah, it looks really nice. Yeah. And being an A-frame, the roofs go down almost all the way to the ground. So they're covering most of the sides of the house. And the roofs going down low helps stop rain from getting in the house. It also prevents direct sunlight coming in in the summer, but creates a lot of surface area for sun to hit to warm up in the winter. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also thought the Erori was really cool. Really ingenious the way that that all works out. Yeah. The Erori is a sunken hearth in the middle of the ground floor, basically just a fire pit. And it does so many things all at once. Like one, obviously, that's what's heating the building. And that's what's keeping it comfortable in the winter. It's also used for cooking. And as the smoke rises up through that thatched roof, it does a bunch more things. It's going to fumigate the roof. It's killing any pests that are living like up in the, in the thatch. It helps melt the snow on top of the thatch. The smoke also has a preservative effect on the wood and the thatch preventing rot. Yeah, it dries it out. It's constantly drying it out. Mm -hmm. When I read that, I was like, that's the most amazing thing ever. Like, ingenious. And it is. But then I saw some videos of people like hanging out inside these houses and they were like, it's really smoky in here because there's no chimney. Like the smoke just slowly goes through the roof eventually. Hmm. So it does, according to trustworthy sources of random people on YouTube. <laughs> it gets it gets a little smoky in there. Okay, I can imagine that, but I mean, I did spend time in some of those when they had the Irori going, and I, I never noticed any problem with the smoke. Yeah. Like, you could probably smell the smoke. It's not going to smell like a normal house with central heating or something, but I, was, I didn't find the smoke oppressive or anything. Yeah, you're a campfire fan, so you'd probably be like, whatever, good, smells good, no problem. For some people, it might be much more sensitive. You know, everyone's different in that. Maybe. I heard that uh, families would sleep around the Erori in winter because it was nice and warm. Makes sense. Warmest place in the house, right around the fire. Yeah. So yeah, like I mentioned before, a lot of these old farmhouses have been converted into minshuku these days, which is a, a traditional Japanese guest house. So you can actually stay there. You can spend a night in one of these historic buildings. I highly recommend it. It's an amazing experience. 
So you get like the whole traditional experience, you know, you'll be sleeping on a futon in a traditional tatami room. Uh, the bath and toilet will be shared, so you know. Uh, and the family that lives there will be taking care of you because you know, all these places are still owned by families. They've been passed down through generations, so it's kind of a bed and breakfast sort of thing. And if you know a little bit of Japanese, that can be pretty fun to practice with them a little bit. All the houses you can stay in will also feed you dinner and breakfast featuring local and seasonal ingredients. I remember the food was pretty elaborate and super delicious. And yeah, a lot of local specialties. And I have a section later on about the food. They have a lot of special food around there. Of course. Yep. And the price is pretty reasonable, in my opinion, considering what you're getting. Just costs around 8 to 10,000 yen, which is about 80 to 100 US dollars per night. Yeah, it's not bad at all for hotel. Mm hmm. And especially with the meals. Right, exactly. Two big, like, filling, nice meals. Yeah. There are a number of the farmhouses that are restaurants too. So if you're just visiting during the day, you can grab some food. I guess I didn't check any of those out because I wanted to save my appetite for my fancy dinner at the Minshuka that night. Makes sense. But I did get some nice street food. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So let's talk about some of the things that you can see and do in Shirakawa because there's a lot. I saw some people online recommended doing just a little day trip to Shirakawago. You know, people would say, oh, it's this tiny village. You know, you can see everything there is to see in just a few hours. I think they're wrong. There's a lot to see and do. There are a number of Gashosukuri farmhouses that were brought in from nearby areas to preserve them. And they are in an open air museum that's what it's kind of like across the river from the main part of the village. Yep. Yeah. So these buildings in the open air museum are kind of more or less empty. Like you're not going to see what it might've been like to live in them as much. It's more just an example of the architecture. You can get a chance to look at these different examples of the Gasho Zukuri style, see what some of these other buildings might've looked like. But the ones that you're actually going to see what it's like to live in and see a lot of artifacts from a couple hundred years ago. Those are back on the other side of the river where people are living. And that's where the Minshuka that you can stay in are located. But the open air museum is definitely worth taking a look around, looking at these old buildings. Pretty cool. And a lot of them are like covered in moss on top of the thatch roofs. Really pretty. Nice. Nice. I know you're a fan of moss. I am. <laughs> so... You had that quote from Mr. Wada earlier. Yeah. Did you go see his family's house? Yeah. So the Wada house is the residence of the Wada family, of course. They were one of the wealthiest families in the village and the village leaders. The house was built in the Edo period and is the largest Gashozukuri farmhouse in the village. So the family does still live there, but the first and second floors are open for tours. And I think that's... At least one of the places where I saw the Irori, the sunken hearth, actually, you know, with a fire in it because it's lit year round there. So you can see what that's like. Wow. Mm -hmm. There are a couple other famous family houses that are museums these days. There's the Kanda House, one of the best preserved farmhouses in the village, apparently. 
Uh, that one you can explore all four floors, actually. Ooh. So you can go up to the very top. You can look out the window up there and see some pretty cool views of the surrounding area. Uh, at the Nagase house, this was the home of the Nagase family. They were doctors for the Maeda lords in Ishikawa Prefecture before they relocated to Shirakawago. So you can actually see some old medical tools and that kind of thing there. Oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. And in the attic, you can see where they raised the silkworms and see some of the tools involved in that industry. And they also have like old farm tools and stuff up there. I think I have a picture from there where they actually showed the life cycle of the silkworms. Like they show how, how the whole process goes and how they turn the cocoons into silk. Pretty cool. Wow. So yeah, a bunch of museums around the village inside these houses, and they're really inexpensive to get into. It's just 300 yen per adult, 150 yen for children. Not bad. Mm-hmm. So there's a main street that runs through the village called Shirakawa Kaido Street. And that's kind of where a lot of the souvenir shops are. Uh, you're also going to see food stalls, all, all the touristy kind of shops around there. So that's a fun place to explore. One place that you definitely should not miss if you're visiting is the Shiroyama Viewpoint, also known as Tenshukaku Observatory, apparently. So if you've looked up pictures of Shirakawago and you see pictures of just the whole village from up above, this is where those pictures were taken. So there's this little trail on the north edge of the village that you can walk up to get to the viewpoint. If you don't want to walk, there are also shuttle buses that can get you there for a couple hundred yen, but it's not a long walk. It's not bad unless you're differently abled in some way. But you'll get an amazing view of the village from up there. You know, I've said that this is my favorite place in the world, I think. This is like the most picturesque spot. You can get up there and just take tons of pictures. So every winter... They do a winter light up where a bunch of the farmhouses are lit up on selected Sundays and maybe a Monday or two. It's usually really busy. You've got to like buy tickets to get there to be allowed mm. in to see it. And up from the viewpoint, especially, it just looks like the most cozy, perfect little winter village ever. Yeah, cozy really is a good word for it. All the little windows are just bright, warm light, and then just the pile of snow on the roofs and all around the buildings. It looks like a winter wonderland. Totally. Um, another place, if you're interested in learning more about the silk industry there, there's the Tajima House Museum of Silk Culture. Go learn about the history and the process of silkworm cultivation. It's apparently dedicated to reviving the traditional silk farming industry, even. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a temple in the village, Myozenji Temple. It's somewhat unusual for a temple because it has a thatched roof, just like the farmhouses. You know, usually temples have those tiled roofs. And the temple is connected to the Myozenji K farmhouse next door, which is where the temple priest used to live. So for 300 yen, you can get admission to the temple and the farmhouse. Check that out. Paul, did you see anything about Hachimangu Shrine? Not a lot. I didn't find a ton of details about it, but apparently it's a popular attraction for otaku, people huh. that are really into anime, because it was featured in a murder mystery visual novel and anime series Higurashi no Naku Koroni, which translates to When the Evening Cicadas Cry. 
Interesting. You ever heard of that one? I'm not sure. Might be a little older one or something. I'm not sure. Haven't, haven't heard that one. And if you're walking around the village, your feet are getting a little tired, you need a place to rest your feet. Maybe stop at Shirakawa Go No Yu, which is the village's only hot spring bathhouse. Ooh, that sounds nice. Yeah. It's also a hotel, actually, that you could stay at. But even if you're not staying there, you can still use the bath. And if you're staying at one of the farmhouses, the Minshuku, they actually offer a discount. So you can go to your Minshu, get, get the discount, go hang out at Hot Spring for a while. That's cool. So there's some special events that happen throughout the year, too. One that I thought looked really cool was there's a snow dyeing ceremony. How does that work? They take dyed material and they lay it out in the snow because somehow that causes like more ink to sink in or to become like dyed better. But then when they take it away, the snow is just like dyed in all these colors. Huh. I have not heard about that. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know if it's the cold or what exactly does it. Hmm. So they do that in mid-February. Uh, cherry blossom viewing. It's very popular. Mid-April to early May in that part of the country. Uh, it would definitely be beautiful. It's beautiful all year round if you add in some cherry blossoms. Ah. Yeah. Of course, since they're, it's a farming village, there's a rice planting festival. Cool. That sounds nice. Apparently, the young women plant rice. Like, I don't know what the men are supposed to be doing. They sit around and watch the young women. (laughs) I don't know if the men are, like, fixing the roofs on the houses or something. Uh, That's around the end of May. And then there's a harvest festival called uh, Doburoku Matsuri. And uh, that's to celebrate the rice harvest on a grand scale. So I assume lots of food and having fun. Yeah. You know, it'd be, it's such a cool place. Like, I just imagine it'd be cool being in Shirakawago when there's happened to be a festival going on. It'd be like that much more fun. Yeah. I was a little bit too late for that festival, but remember that, Doburoku, because I have some details about that in the next section when we start talking about food. All right, Jason, let's talk about food. Okay. Should we start with Doburoku then? <laughs> let's do it. Okay. So the word Doburoku it refers to this unrefined sake that they make there. It is sweet and thick and, you know, unrefined means it still has pieces of grains of rice in there. I'm not even talking about like the cloudy sake that you can get. Like if you've ever shopped for sake or looked at a sake section in a liquor store, you got the refined sake that's perfectly clear and then there's the unrefined stuff that's kind of cloudy because it's got little particles in there, right, from the rice. But this stuff, the doboroku, is so unrefined (laughs) that it actually has chunks of rice in there. Like, you could strain the rice pieces out of this stuff. So it's thick. It's like thick sake. And at that festival each October, they serve this stuff, and they pray to the local mountain kami for a good harvest and for protection. They got a lion dance, folk singing and dancing. And everybody's drinking this sake. Like they go around pouring sake into little cups in everybody's hands. My kind of party. Yeah. So even though I missed the festival by a few weeks, I was still able to try this stuff at the festival museum. They'll still serve it to tourists there. And it's one of the only places in the country that you can 
get it too because it's illegal to make it in most places. Interesting. Yeah. I saw it referred to as Japanese moonshine, <laughs> but they're allowed to make it in Shirakawago because of its cultural significance there. Nice. Apparently, you can also find Doboroku ice cream. Ah, I heard there was Doboroku rice wine pudding. Oh, wow. That'd be interesting. Yeah, if it's already thick, it might not be that hard to get it into a pudding type substance. Yeah, I guess if you just put it into a food processor or something, you just smooth it out. <laughs> interesting. What other local foods you got? Sutate nabe. So we've talked about nabes before. Hot pot? Hot pot, exactly. So this is a local specialty dish prepared by mixing stone ground soybeans with miso and soy sauce broth. Interesting. Yeah, it gained popularity at Buddhist ceremonies and local celebrations. They usually put thinly sliced vegetables in there to give it a little crisp texture. Some local cloud ear mushrooms. Never heard of those before. And they always add hidagyu, which is uh, meat that they eat locally. <laughs> I didn't get much more info on it than that. Oh my gosh. It's like a Paul. local specialty meat. Oh my gosh. And that's where I lost interest. So why don't you <laughs> fill us in on the rest of that? Hidagyu. So gyu means beef. Hida gyu is not as famous as Kobe beef, but it's another one of the very top kinds of Japanese beef, and it is amazing. They served me this at dinner at the Minshuka that I stayed at. So yeah, it's just like this super high quality, perfectly marbled beef. It is amazing. You can find Hida beef skewers and croquettes being sold at the local food stands too. Mm. You can find it in the local restaurants. If you stay at a Minshuku, like there are a bunch of them and I just stayed at one of them, but I would think that no matter which one you stay at, you are very likely to be served Hida beef. They seem to be pretty proud of it. Yeah, definitely. I think I got some Hida beef flavored potato chips in one of the tourist shops there too. <laughs> uh, why not? Yeah. Uh, river fish are common as they're on a river. Sure. So char and different kinds of trout you're okay. going to find. What else could you eat there? Well, I read about some other stuff. I wasn't aware of a lot of this when I visited, unfortunately, but uh, gohei mochi is popular. That's where they put a flat sort of oval-shaped chunk of mochi on a stick, and then they grill that, and then they coat it in a sweet and savory sauce made with miso, soy sauce, and walnuts. Oh, that sounds good. It does sound good. Uh, there's another mochi one. I thought this was really interesting. A local mochi-based delicacy called tochi mochi. Tochi mochi? I like yeah. it already. Tochi is Japanese horse chestnut. So the way they make this is they boil the chestnut fruit with the mochi rice, and they mash it all together when they make it into mochi. So you end up with kind of a brown mochi with ah. this you know, chestnut fruit flavor. I would definitely try some. Yeah. The area is also known for buckwheat cultivation. The buckwheat is used to make soba noodles. So you could find a bunch of different types of soba in local restaurants. You got zaru soba, kake soba, different ways of serving it. So yeah, if you visit, try some local food, definitely. Always a good idea. Yes. So now we know why we should go and what we should do while we're there. So how do we get there, and what are some things that maybe we should know if we're going to go visit Shirakawago? Well, 
there aren't any train lines that go directly into Shirakawa Go. But you can take a bus from nearby Kanazawa. That's where I got there from. Uh, there are also buses from Takayama or Toyama, which are nearby. So it's not too hard. You just got to find a bus terminal and ask them, you know, I need to take it to Shirakawa Go. It's not that hard. Don't be intimidated just because there's not trains. Yeah. A lot of buses go there. It's a common place. Mm-hmm. One of the instances where renting a car in Japan could work for you because you could definitely drive there. You could. And like I said, some people say, you know, you can do a short day trip. And I mean, you could, you know, if you're not interested in exploring every little house and trying all the food and, you know, you could just go for a few hours or whatever if you wanted to. But I would really recommend staying the night, staying in one of those minshuku. You can take your time wandering around, getting food, exploring every museum and just seeing what life would have been like a couple hundred years ago. And really, I think it's worth it even just for the experience of being there after all the daytime tourists are gone. And the only people left are the ones staying in the houses. You know, it's just such a peaceful place. It's just calming for the soul, you know? Sounds like it. There's a few etiquette things if you do go visit Shirakawa Go. No fires. We mentioned before, these houses are flammable. So no fireworks, no bonfires, and smoking only in designated areas. Don't just light one up. Don't just pull a lighter out of your pocket. They take it seriously for good reason. Take your trash back out with you. There's no public trash cans. Mm -hmm. So anything you bring in with you, it's like hiking. You bring it in with you, it all comes back out with you. Good tip for anywhere in Japan. Yeah, pretty much. If you can't find a konbini with a trash can, you're out of luck. Yeah. And stay off private property. Not all of these houses are open to the public. Some some of the houses are just private residences, so don't go peeking in windows, wandering around any house you see there. One interesting thing to note, though, is there is free Wi-Fi available at various locations. So that's nice. Yeah. There was one little thing I wanted to mention about staying at one of these places, too. It's not too hard to make a reservation at these places with a little Googling. Some of these minshuku you can even find on major, you know, hotel booking websites and stuff. But when I went, I was traveling solo, and I did have a little bit of trouble booking a minshuku by myself. Apparently, they've had some trouble with solo people in the past, like just not showing up or whatever. I don't know. So if you're going alone, you might need to contact the local tourism association directly. They can help you out. That's a good note. Thank Mm -hmm. you, Jason. You're welcome. That's all I got today. That's all I got too. Go to Shirakawa Go. It will blow your mind. (laughs) You'll never want to leave. All right. Well, if you've been to Shirakawa Go and you want to tell us about it, we'd love to hear from you. You can send us an email. Our email address is feedback at sightseeingjapanpodcast.com. I'll be posting a bunch of pictures of Shirakawa Go on our Instagram. SJP Podcast is our name there. Paul, what are we talking about next time? On the next episode, we're talking about Pachinko. And I always knew Pachinko was pretty popular in Japan. But wait until you hear some of the statistics. We're going to drop on you in that episode. It's unbelievable. Yeah, it really is. I had no idea it was... I mean, you see them all over the place, the Pachinko parlors, but I didn't realize just how big it was. Yeah, right? Yeah. Well, that'll be fun. Thanks for listening. See you next time.